A long time ago, by the Amazon River, some young women used to gather and sing and dream about life. They would sit for long hours as the sky became dark and be enchanted by the beautiful white moon and the mysterious stars. They dreamed of being one of those stars. The moon would shine down on the waters, making the youngest girl, Naya, want to climb high in a tree to try and touch the moon. She couldn't, of course, and the next time, she and her friends tried climbing up again to reach up and feel the smoothness of the moon. They failed and returned home, feeling sad because if only they could reach the moon or the stars, they could turn themselves into one of them. The following night, Naya left without a sound, without the others, wanting so bad for her dream to become one of the stars to come true. She took the river trails and came upon a place where the moon was shining so bright on the water that she thought the moon had come down to bathe in it and allow her to touch it. So Naya dove deep into the water and there she disappeared forever. The moon took pity that night on the girl's lost life and transformed her body into a giant flower, the Vittoria Hegia, with a sweet, gentle perfume and petals that spread gracefully over the water to receive the full light of the moon forever. You're listening to Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. This episode will explore the kindred relation between humans and the natural state of our Earth. So settle in, relax, and let's get turned on to our oldest connection. The Koji, an indigenous tribe in Colombia, is one of four precious groups of people left on our planet who understand how deeply that we and the Earth interconnect and depend on one another. They're the guardians of the Sierra Nevada mountain range along the coast of the Caribbean. I watched a documentary on these people that I really liked called Aluna. The Koji believe that this mountain is a living entity. The place is a coastal mountain range and it's really diverse ecologically. It has lakes and glaciers and coral reefs and tundra and even desert areas. It's got everything, and the Koji believe that humans are here to uphold and protect these ecosystems. That if we keep up our destructive mega-projects, large-scale things, like logging and mining and expanding ports, in general anything nurturing the type of global production that destroys large parts of the land or water, they believe that will affect and kill off the mountain range, and they've kind of been watching it happen. The top of the mountain is dying. The belief is that one action here affects another part of the planet somewhere else because we're all connected to it. And I kind of believe they're right. That this mass destruction causes sickness in other parts of the world and brings us all towards disease and instability a lot faster. I've gone from extreme situation to extreme situation for the past eight years, and I completely understand that colossal difference between overpopulation, modern tech, and then what's raw and natural, and what effects both of those things have on human health. I understand this in a very personal way. 
And I want to explain my experience with both a congested, technologically-based lifestyle and then living out here and so connected to nature, natural existence. I was in an apartment in the heart of Brooklyn. It was a neighborhood that was a little economically depressed. People struggled. This idea that, that higher wages people are paid in New York makes up for rent prices is a total myth. It's not true. If you're not already financially established or if you're not coming from family wealth, you're going to struggle really, really hard just to keep from getting sick because you can't afford healthy food. The cheapest thing there is pizza, and a lot of poor people live off of it. So I lived alongside a neighborhood of people who were struggling, hustling every day from morning to night. You didn't have time to relax. There was no part of the day where you could just chill. You were constantly in that hustle mindset. You went to sleep at night thinking of money and ways you could make more. It was active. The place was loud. I lived in a small apartment, pretty tiny, for five of us. Sometimes there were four. Roommates came in and out. It was a revolving door. One of the bedrooms in there was the size of a small closet. It was tiny. I didn't have my own room. I shared it. The common space was not spacious at all. You could barely walk through there. If one person was coming through, you had to squeeze yourself out of the way and wait until you could go in the other direction. One window in there, one window, overlooked a bunch of other windows from another building that was right on top of us. The view was an alleyway where garbage was collected. Just garbage. And this was three grand a month. We struggled to pay it and keep somewhat decent food in the kitchen and keep the gas on. You walked out the front door of the building onto concrete. The minute you stepped outside, the noise was amped up to 10. Traffic, horns. We lived right next to a subway station and you could hear the hair raising screeching every time a train rolled in, about every seven minutes. It shook the whole area around the station. There was always a heavy vibration. And you couldn't walk in relaxed mode. You had to walk like you meant it. You had to keep up with fast foot traffic or these busy people would get offended. You were making somebody somewhere late, getting where they needed to be. You had to be on top of your survival game the minute you stepped outside every single day. And for somebody like me, with a disabling condition, this was not easy. I'm like the canary in a coal mine. I'm going to be the first one to feel all those bad effects of health in a place like this. Then I left, and it took me, I don't know, a week to get settled in the Appalachians. I was used to setting up things fast, so after I'd been there for a little more than a hot minute, I had the total opposite experience. Instead of having to block out most of what was around me in order to keep going, I began soaking it in. Every subtle little thing, the faint smells, the distant movements of wildlife, the rustling, the sounds that blended in together like a symphony and didn't have the same kind of feel as the impact of the sounds in the city just layered over one another. I didn't have a computer, no electricity, no walls, no plumbing. I was living in a tent. I could feel the weather on me like a, a second skin. 
My light was firelight and candles. The only piece of tech equipment I had was a smartphone, and I was so conservative with my data usage because I had no way to plug it in to charge except for with my truck battery, and so I didn't use it that often. And I was suddenly forced to feel real things and touch tangible things. I was so aware of where my garbage was going, how much water I was using, where I was getting it. My whole perspective on the world changed. The way I took in things around me, how personal all these things suddenly became. And I began to realize what the Koji people already have for thousands of years, that this mountain was its own living entity. The earth was alive and it was aware on so many subtle levels. And it responded to everything that happened to it, just like me. Now, I wanted to describe those two things to really explain the serious, serious differences between those two states of living. I've immersed myself in both now in very extreme ways. And so I believe that I can talk about it now with some experience behind me. It's an incredible difference. And it has big effects on a person's mental health and on their physical health too. And one interesting thing about these two states of living is that I still haven't been so far removed from big mega projects that destroy great big areas just because I'm back in nature. In the city, you had mass construction projects going on all the time. Big, big construction. Constantly. And here, this place is beautiful with all kinds of resources that humans want and need. So you have strip mining. You have clear cutting. Serious destruction here too. And I live right beside it practically. What's going on over there on somebody else's acreage directly affects my acreage and the way I live every day. So going back to the Koji belief that the mountain is alive and feeling, being so inside and connected to a natural space like this, long enough, by yourself especially, it starts to cause your senses to heighten over time. We're really adaptable creatures, and this will happen to anybody who spends enough time outside in a natural setting. Your eyes get sharper. There's evidence that exposure to sunlight will improve your eyesight. Your sense of space gets stronger. You're able to tell if anything is coming near you before you see anything. You can tell when something's been somewhere after it's already gone. I got to a place where I could smell these things. And I could even feel where a rainstorm system was and how much time I had before the rain actually fell down on top of me. Did I have enough time to go gather a few more containers of water? Or did I need to find shelter really quick? How strong was that water going to be? How strong was the wind going to be? You get to where you can tell, just like the birds can. And one very wild thing that I learned out here was that everything was alive. I knew after being here a while that the water, the spring creek, was its own entity. I'd sit beside it and I could feel its essence, its individuality, its awareness of me. My behavior changed. I started to be 
more careful about how I approached that creek and whether or not it was okay for me to step into it. When I touched the water, it felt like I was touching somebody's skin, a living creature's skin, and invading its space. And I felt the urgency to be more cautious and considerate about how I was using and getting into that water. And the creek had to have time to get used to me. I was new in its territory, and over time I developed this silent trust with this water. And I know all this sounds bizarre, but the strangest things started to happen once I had built this relationship with this water. It seemed like it was more than just seemed like every single time. Every time I asked for something by this water's edge, it started to happen in real life. I'm not making this up. I thought I was losing my mind or slowly going insane. I questioned my sanity until it just kept happening every single time. I tested it. I'd ask for things that were silly, things I didn't really need, and I got them. I'm not going to tell everybody the things that I asked for there. It's kind of private, and this is a very eccentric experience in the first place. You're really not supposed to say these things out loud, but I can promise you, I got everything, every single thing. And even when I thought I'd been wronged and wanted some sort of justice, I got it. It didn't matter. Our human idea of good and bad, something just told me that was flawed. And it made me be even more careful because I suddenly didn't have this dogmatic rule book that told me how to be good or bad anymore. I had these choices. I had this freedom. I had to own up to the fact that I had been given this allowance to want what I wanted regardless. And so that freedom and what felt like something having faith in me made me be way more careful and considerate in my life. It made me make better and more humane decisions. I stopped always thinking of myself first. And I became more balanced in, a, in the way that I thought about the land and other people and this water's edge, the creek itself. It was just as dependent on me, so I kept her clean. I tested her water. I respected her every day. I visited and I respected. And pretty soon, she showed me where another spring head was, so I was able to get fresher water. The side of the bank just opened up after a storm one day, and there it was. So I get what the Koji people are saying. I can entirely relate to this. Absolutely. There's something that happens to you when you've allowed yourself to melt into the ecosystem and become a part of it rather than somebody just coming in once in a while to use the resources or even to just push it to the side to make way for something more convenient. And there's no real way to get around that. If you want to live somewhat comfortably and not be completely cut off from the whole world, you end up doing some damage. I've gotten right in there myself, chopping up plants and pulling their living bodies right out of the ground to make room for what I wanted to build. And when I did that, I was alone, and I could feel it. I understood for the first time 
that I was a killer too. Not somebody so far removed and sitting on a pedestal somewhere with the right to say that I'm perfect and never destroy anything. I realized I was a predator in this world too, making myself stronger and more comfortable in my space. And that's just how it works. Everything kills and rearranges to some degree in order to settle its own space. We humans just tend to do it on a much bigger scale than, I don't, I don't know, ants or badgers. And our destruction doesn't offer much to the ecological system. We're used to stripping it and then not giving anything back. Clear-cutting, just in case there's somebody out there who doesn't know, is when a logging company comes in and cuts down every tree indiscriminately, no regard to the type of tree, what size it is. It's easier for them to just come in and cut them all down and sort out which ones bring in money later. They cut them all, big ones, small ones, twigs, everything. It's just stripped to the bones of the land. There's nothing left. It's all processed right there on the site. The ones that are not commercially usable will be thrown in this big pile and left there to rot. They don't haul them out. They don't chop them up into mulch or anything. They're just left in this skeletal mound of dead trees. A lot of times these big machines, they'll drive right through a whole patch of small trees, pulling them all up from their roots leaving nothing to grow back. And this is a more cost-effective way of getting lumber for companies. Their investors get a higher rate of return, and the cost-effectiveness spills over to the consumer. The lumber is a little bit cheaper in the stores because they're not wasting all their time only cutting down the trees that are usable. But they've destroyed the land in the process. It takes years and years much longer than people realize for that land to come back to life. Unless you've been to one of these sites and you've seen it and tried to walk on it, you don't understand the destruction. You can't navigate on it anymore. You can't walk over it anymore. There are too many giant piles of dead trees in the way, and they're too hard to cross. You can't just step over them or through them. It's a mess. There's trees half chopped up. It smells different. There's this weird medicinal smell in the air because all these trees have been shaved and smeared all through the mud. And it is muddy. There's a big erosion problem. It opens up the whole waterway system and floods every time it rains. It's an extreme consequence. It runs off into the lakes and the rivers and into my creek and makes its way down towards me. And so while I depend on that water, all of a sudden I can't use it for days after a storm. It's full of runoff from a logging site. I have to wait again until it clears itself up and it works extra hard to filter itself out again. And I'll bet a lot of folks don't know something else. Red maple trees and black walnut trees. Two trees we happen to have a ton of in the Appalachian Mountains are poisonous to horses sometimes cattle, but especially horses. And when the runoff happens, those dead maple tree piles make their way down the creek. They end up in pasture fields with these horses and make animals really sick when they drink from the water. Or if those tree guts get washed onto the pasture property, 
Red maple trees can kill a horse in 24 hours if it eats it. Clear-cutting moves out and kills wildlife habitats. Prey animals will totally be wiped out, which causes more predators to make their way closer to a, a residential neighborhood. Bees and insects are driven out, moving in on top of already congested areas, and they start dying out because we don't want bee problems in our backyards. There's so much consequence from one action like this. What we do on one side of the world does affect more than we realize. There are less trees to filter out and combat the greenhouse gases that we're slowly smothering ourselves under. And clear-cutting is just one tiny fraction of these mega-projects that threaten our lives here. We're overcrowded, demanding, and not many people pay attention anymore to what they're using up. It's become so easy to look away from things like this and forget that we're so much more dependent on nature's ecosystems than we think we are. It's easy to stop paying attention to subtleties when you're surrounded by sealed-up walls that keep out all the sounds, all the smells of the natural atmospheres. You can just forget it's there. Our waste flushes away and just disappears. We don't have to worry about where it's going. Our garbage gets taken out by a truck every morning while we're sleeping. Our lumber is already treated and smooth and perfect when we go pick it up. We didn't have to mill it or cut it or see what happened in the process. We don't have to know that it probably destroyed somebody else's property or killed their horse. We go to the grocery store and buy packaged meat that's all wrapped up and we don't have to think about what happened during that processing or how safe or dirty it really is. Water comes out of a tap every time we crank a handle. We don't have to heat it up to get it warm. It's automatically hot. Being trapped in technology, in my own head, in a tiny apartment full of equipment and TVs and walking onto concrete, that's just not real enough for me. I don't feel like I'm living life that way. Even dependence on electric lighting sometimes feels deadening to me. It's not natural light. I'm human. Humans need the sunshine. And we need to touch the rough edges of tree bark, feel grass on the soles of our feet, smell a real growing flower, smell another human being. I know that sounds weird, but I'm dead serious. Using our heads is great, but being psychologically chained to a computer screen or a phone all day gets lifeless. We can use technology, but we don't have to be married to it every single second of the day, simply because most of what we expose ourselves to online is shallow, emotionless, and a lot of it, it's not real. It's hard to find the real stuff in that techno jungle. So how on earth do we do it? How do we stay healthy, keep from destroying everything that keeps us healthy, and still utilize conveniences and technology without losing our connections with what's real. I don't know if I have an answer to that. It's something to think about. But what I do know is that we need this earth. We literally can't breathe without dense forests. And it does something poisonous to our minds to be stuck in concrete and too much technology. 
I do know that the healthiest people on this planet, the people with the most longevity and peaceful natures, they don't live the lifestyles that most of modern society does. They garden by hand. They grow their own foods. They do physical labor in the sunshine. They take naps and they talk to each other in person. They sit together in the evenings and spend time with one another, sharing stories and music, and they make things together. They're in Okinawa, Japan. They're on the Nicoya Peninsula. And they're certainly not the Koji who keep getting sick now and dying out because the mass destruction that's going on so close to their territory is killing them. All I see to really do at this point, on an individual level, is to keep an eye on a chosen lifestyle and to decide how much disease, physically or mentally, is allowed into my space every day, every night. You've been listening to Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. I want to thank my biggest supporters of my crazy artistic projects and this podcast, Chris Nolan, Bruce Presson, Sheila McGregor, and Arnold Bloom. Thank you so much. I wish everybody the best weekend. Keep your hearts rich, and I'll be back next week.